on this episode of Of Mechs and Men, we learn vanadium isn't strong enough to move a Steiner, but it is strong enough to stop a bullet. Hello, this is Of Mechs and Men, a Battletech book club. I am Kanan Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent. Oi, it's me, Brent. And Aaron. It's me, Aaron. How are we doing, boys? To enable auto-eject or to disable it? That is the question. Well, don't eject just yet, because this week we're going to be covering chapters 25 through 29, the book we've been going through each week. Mercenary Star by William H. Keith Jr. Let's get into it. Chapter 25 We open with a scene on the fishing village of Wesley. This is where the Phobos went earlier when across the ocean. In fact, we see the Phobos here. It's parked in the shadow of like this large rock formation. Khaled Stinger is on lookout duty. You know, he's looking around. Khaled signals the coast is clear and Grayson Shadowhawk comes rumbling out of the brush because he was leading that whole column. They've been traveling through the jungle. They made it. It was a brutal journey, but they managed to link back up with the Phobos. They had to travel like a thousand kilometers. They couldn't do it very quickly because uh, the logger mechs are so slow. They're not very fast. Four apprentice mech pilots passed out along the way. And they had to abandon two picker mechs and three hover transports. But they make it. They roll up about four hours past dawn. And for the first time in this part of Mercenary Star, the Great Death Legion is back to full strength. We're all back together again, so... Full strength, I don't think, is quite the word, but uh, we do have a bit of a reunion. Yeah. Well, we haven't lost any Grey Death Legion mechs yet. Oh, not mechs, no. Yeah. Personnel. Personnel is a different story, absolutely. Yeah. They've taken some losses. They've lost a lot of technical staff, including the chief technicians, Tomlinson and Corellian, and, of course, the Revolutionary Council was captured. Well, we know that Erickson was killed. He was shot while getting away, is the official story. The Revolutionary Council is out of the picture, and this is going to have probably some implications, both good and bad. I think this is a double-edged sword. I think some of the things that they were doing that were not helping their own efforts, it's going to be a boon that they're gone in that way. However... It would be a lie to say that they didn't bring anything to the table. Well, yeah, you could really look at it as there's two primary impacts of this, one apparent and one less. The first one being the council was the driving force for this for a very long time. So without that, that is a big blow to both Verthandi morale in the war, but also at the same time, that blow to morale can also stir more action. The second effect, the subtler effect of it would be something we spent a lot of time talking about last episode, which was there were a lot of accusations from the council and many members of the war saying this will become Grayson's war. 
Well, now Grayson's really the only unifying force left. If we've got none of the people that help structure this at the top available, then defaulting, then this defaults back into Grayson's lap. And there is a lot of that element of Verthandi and the world and the people that he won't be able to detect the nuances of. He won't know exactly the reactions of things. As we talk about in this episode and as we continue on, I don't think we're going to see those impacts yet. At least there's nothing really that strikes me through these chapters we'll talk about here that I've read so far that we see the direct side of that. However, it is definitely something when I was reading it, I felt like there could be an undercurrent of that very easily. And I wouldn't be surprised to see it. On another note, with what you were saying about Grayson, this thing's also seems to be getting away from everyone, which is what Grayson wants. It's a bit of a wildfire now. You get the feeling that it's like things are getting out of hand, but in a good way, as in they're out of anyone's hand. People are taking up Mm -hmm. arms. People are doing... A little bit of a fresh start to something, even though the fresh start's going to feel terrible to encounter. And I think we'll definitely feel that a little bit more in this episode later on. Right now, any fire that's out of control is going to feel like a really sad smolder (laughs) as we go into this next section talking about the staff meeting. Oh, yeah. There's a lot to talk about. Exactly. So that's right, folks. It's time for another staff meeting. I love the staff meeting sections. I think this is our third one, kind of like this kind of scene. First things first, we had to bury poor Yaleg. Yaleg Yarlis. It says that here. They bury him. And then they have a meeting. It is now time to take stock and come to terms with what we have left, all that business. Clay was immaculate in his trim green and brown Rough Riders uniform. So Delmar Clay looks great. He was in Hanson's Rough Riders, right? So he has like the jacket. That's cool. Yeah. He's got a cool jacket, I bet. They're all here. Lori is here. Martinez is here. Ilsa Martinez, which is great. It's like, yeah, Martinez is back. I love this. Grayson asked Martinez about the condition of the ship. He's like, how's the ship doing? It's not doing good. There's like a whole thing. It's almost like it just was used as a steam engine to go across nautical miles and miles of of ocean. Yes. She says, the ship is not going anywhere until she gets a refit. Her number three tube is cracked and her primary heat exchangers are shot. Fusion pile needs flushing and relining and magnetic superconductors in the plasma bottle charge directors need replacement. So I thought... He wrote all that. That was pretty cool. So it's really messed up, basically. (laughs) My favorite line in the Martinez explanation was, we barely made it here as a steamboat. We're not going to be a spacecraft again for a long time yet. And it was just like, yeah, I guess we did have to make a bunch of changes to this to get it seaworthy. And now we have to get it back spaceworthy. And they're sitting there kind of debating, like, how are we even going to get this stuff? Yeah. My favorite, this is uh, this is actually what I thought you were going to point out. I love, there's this little exchange where Grayson is doing his, his, like, he literally says, like, I know she's already done this, but he's like, I gotta dot my I's and cross my T's, and he's like, you check the machine shop, and she's like, yep. <laughs> she, she use unanswered with a sour expression and a downturned thumb. I just see her like, just like making a grumpy face. Just like, boo. (laughs) Yeah. She's great. Happy to see Martinez again. It is nice. A bittersweet reunion. That's actually what I would call this chapter. They realize they're not going to make the rendezvous with Captain Tor, who is due back in system in 120 hours or four days. 
they consider stealing a dropship to get away. Again, like this is the part where it's like, let's steal another dropship. And they're all like, should, <laughs> you know, they're like, should we? Could we? I think Delmar's like, we could. They don't have tour here. Exactly. But they <laughs> don't have tour this time. They don't have tour. So it would never happen. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, oh, plus it'd be messed up to leave. McCall says something about, you know, we couldn't be leaving. We would be screwing the indigs. And then Grayson, like, nervously, like, glances over at, like, the other Verthandians at the use of the word indig. Like, he's like, uh-oh, uh, that's kind of a, it's a, <laughs> that's a little dicey. It's okay, though. <laughs> Apparently, McCall got the I word pass. They totally let it slide. Actually, I, I think it even <laughs> says that may, it, it could just be that his accent is too thick. He calls him indigs, and Grayson's like, ooh, dude. He, like, he like looks over, and he's like, I don't think they heard it. But yeah, one of the dudes from the Rangers, he tells him, he's like, look, if you guys want to cut and run, for real, we get it. But also, if you leave, we're done for. Nebraska's like, boss, there's no way we can win this. Let's take a vote. So we have another vote. So they send the Verthandians out, and they put it to a vote. We get another show of hands scene. This is the third one, again, where it's like, we got to vote on something. We yep. got to make a decision. First to take the contract and then to continue. And then once again, they vote, should they continue from here? Lori, McCall, Khaled, they all put their hands up. Ramaj is concerned, but you know, he's like, yeah. Martinez puts her hand up. She says she still doesn't care for the indigs, but they sent them out of the room first, so it's okay. <laughs> She's like, I don't want to leave my ship though. Dabrowski votes last, crucially. He says, I'll vote with the rest of you, because Yalag was my friend. I don't want to sacrifice to be in vain. Everyone's still in. They're once again committed. I like what Martinez says here. Okay, well, that's it. We all want to do the right thing, but how the hell are we going to do that? Exactly. You keep making allusions to it, Kanan, but the reality is, is that we've seen this scene before. They all decide to do the right thing. Yeah. Is it? Is it the right thing? Can we do the right thing? Is everyone on board? Do we still have like cohesion? Do we still have morale? And then once that's established, they start planning. Yeah. And that's what happens here. Is it morality or is it rationalization of a sunk cost fallacy? <laughs> <laughs> Grayson tells them, all right, we're all in. So here's the plan. We got to keep hitting them. We can't get dragged out into a whole long war of attrition thing because they can resupply from off planet right they have regiments they can keep bringing guys and equipment in and we can't so we're gonna lose 100 of the time we got to keep up the pace martinez she brings up the point about how so many of the verthandian population are actually loyalists right they have this whole little conversation here about like you know what about you'll probably get a lot of resistance for all this you know not everyone's on your side there's a whole element there that you have to contend with there's real hearts and minds kind of a situation going on and that's when grayson smartly realizes that yes the majority of the population are just actually moderates right moderates who are just guys being dudes you know how it is moderates who could be mobilized if they had something to really get behind really rally behind just people living their lives not everyone's out here fighting in battle mix i think the prerogative here is hope yeah everyone is in a state of inaction because this all seems so hopeless to everyone i mean there's no direct indication that that's the case but well i mean from inferring it from last episode that we talked about where there were many of those conversations where it was like there's a whole planet of Thandians here if we could get half of them to fight we'd outnumber Cretans by a large margin and was coming up with that idea of how do we get those people inspired to fight? That's the trick. 
And Grayson takes this opportunity to kind of start part one of that now, something to really help out when he lays down the idea of what we need right now might not even be on this planet. And yeah. Tor coming back gives us an opportunity to maybe reach out a little bit off planet. Exactly. That's the first order of business. That's what he says. The first thing we do is put together the message that we're going to beam at the Invidious when Captain Tor pops back in system, and we'll have him fetch us some help. Who? Lori asked. Another bunch of Merc mechs? No, something Freever Thandy needs more right now than a whole battle mech army. What's that? Recognition. End of chapter. Excellent. Yeah. Even though a whole battle mech army probably would be really helpful, though. Yeah. You know? <laughs> But we can all say, we know what Grayson was saying here. It'd be a cheap shot. Right. And it kind of starts us off here in this episode on more of a somber chapter is just kind of like, well, what do we do? And as Brent, as you said, this whole chapter, we have seen so many times already in this book alone. And for me, I do feel like if I was to throw in a critique here, it's that it really could have been a little punchier. Sure. Because we didn't really address two people that were closer to some of the losses. You know, we mentioned very briefly in this chapter, Dabrowski's kind of like, oh, I don't want Yaleg's death to be for nothing. But when we first kind of were introduced to these characters, they seemed so close. That's true. And I felt like we could have really used a scene with him and Grayson Yeah. prior to this meeting, basically talking about like, that guy was a great friend of mine. And to really drive home the loss a little bit more. That would have been nice. So I disagree with you. I don't want this to get too personal. The reality is that these guys are all so incredibly tired. I feel like that has been very well portrayed just in the bit of a death march that they just undertook. I get what you're saying from a literary standpoint, right? But when you're this tired and when you've been dealing with this much loss for so long, you're just numb. And I feel like that comes through for me. And admittedly, maybe it's me projecting things that have happened in my life onto this. But that's what I feel about this, which is like, they, you get this bittersweet reunion where like, you feel like everyone's happy to see each other, but also like, there's just sadness in everyone's eye. Like, the only thing that they all can do is to just move forward. And I feel like they're too tired to mourn. I feel like there was complete silence while they dug Yarleg's grave. That's how I feel it in my head. I've been in those situations and the emotions, the like stuff that comes flooding back after you're not exhausted. And that's what I feel about this. And maybe, like I said, maybe I'm projecting, but that's the feeling I get. Well said, Brent. Oh, absolutely. No, and I could see you could absolutely be right in that. But in that case, then I do think we have a fallback that we could use in that stead, which would be Tolan. Right. Because we just established Tolan and Carlotta as the Revolutionary Council. And we know Tolan was yeah. on this trip. And we don't even hear a peep from Tolan in this one. But we did establish that whole like line right at the end last episode with Tolan and Carlotta. Basically, like, this whole war can't keep us apart. A scene where somebody has to kind of hold him back. And it's like, you know, right. Grayson, we needed to go there. Like, Carlotta's there. And he breaks a little bit of that stoicism he showed and trying to hide that relationship and everything just to drive that home. And especially with something we're going to talk about here very soon, it would be a good little foreshadowing device for that. But I agree, maybe with Yaleg 
and Dabrowski, some of that element of they were mercenaries together too, and part of that relationship had an understanding in there. So him moving forward could absolutely feel very normal and very human here. But I feel like then you did have that fallback of Tolan that we could have gotten that same experience out of. I'm sure that they're all feeling it. It's just that at this point, it's so... They have no energy to oh, put yeah. into those emotions, right? Like, And I will say this chapter, you do feel it. If you're reading through it, the, from the pacing of the rest of the book, sure, this is probably the slowest chapter because of that. You feel that tiredness, you know, from even the descriptions early on when we were talking about Delmar Clay's uniform. And then Keith uses that example of like, oh, Martina is Colin and Clay all look, you know. Right. Pretty spick right. and span for being almost shipwrecked. And then they see the rest of the Grey Death Legion coming in zombie mode. There were a lot of pulls to that. I just think. It could have been a little punchier. I agree. Some of that was projecting, maybe. But also, even if that was the case, I feel like you could have leaned into that. But that's just the way I've pictured that in my head on my last couple readings. Uh, but I will say, when we got to the end of this, and as we finished this whole discussion as well, Keith does do a good job of like kind of kickstarting it back up. Of like, oh, we've got a plan. We're back in motion. Always keep Grayson moving. And that's something, you know, they kind of identify like, well, we got to get a message to a dropship. And instead of highlighting the plan, Keith does the mechanic that he really likes doing, which is describe something we need. <laughs> he loves this, doesn't he? <laughs> Cut to the action they're taking to accomplish that. And we're going to find out exactly the action that they're going to take here in the next chapter. Chapter 26. We open on the scene of Ramage climbing a wall. He's just snuck out of the rocks on like the backside of this building, and he grappled a rope to the top of this wall. And he's just climbing this thing. He's climbing up the side of this building. It's awesome. You can hear like the sounds of a battle raging on the other side. Ramage, he gets up near the top and he like peeks his head up onto the roof. He sees two sentries. But they got their back to him. They're just like watching the battle. They're not even, they're like officers, right? I think they have like uh, binoculars. He's watching them for a second. He has like a little sonic stunner he brings up with him. He totally, he shoots the dudes with the little stunner, like climbs onto the top. He motions to his guys behind him and like a bunch of dudes start climbing up the rope after him. He's got like a bunch of his boys with him. They get up on the top and we see that a panther is standing guard in front of the building. There's a mech. We got a panther here. So it makes sense the boys took the back way in. Ramage looks out onto the battle, and we see that in the front of the building, where the panther is looking, there's a whole mech skirmish going on. It's like this whole battle scene. All of the Legion's mechs are there. Grayson's here with two lances, and they're going at it with, like, loyalist forces. They finish making their way up the rope, and then someone hands Ramage a rifle, right? I love this part, where... As soon as Ramage starts making for the stairs down, some young officer comes out, like opens the door and he's holding like three coffee cups, right? And instead of shooting him, Ramage, I think he hits them with the butt of his rifle or whatever, or like kicks him down the stairs. It's funny, the coffee cups go flying everywhere, but then it's like Ramage skips the stairs. He just jumps down. He like pushes the dude down the stairs and then jumps the whole flight of stairs down on him. So he's on the next floor down now. He looks around. There's three comm officers in here. 
there's three comm officers in here. So Ramaj just guns them down. It's sweet. He totally takes him out. The boys like rush down the steps, rifles ready. The door leading to the first floor busts open and the room like erupts in gunfire. So we do have, they have like a little gunfight where it's like, and they're shooting each other. The boys, they shoot a couple more combine dudes and then they push a desk in front of the door, right? They eventually like, come on, barricade it. And they push him down and they like barricade the door temporarily. Ramaj like gets to work on the computer. He checks the recent transponder codes, and he sees that the Invidious is indeed in system. And during that little quick gunfight that they're having, as soon as everybody's busted in the door, and the counter-Koreatan force that was in the building comes in and starts spraying, uh, it does notate in there that one of the ten men that are with him, Chapley, gets hit immediately. It's basically like arms over his stomach, collapses. They don't mention that he's dead. They just say that he collapses. So he's been shot. Oh, yeah. Chapley gets hit. One of our 10 boys has already been hit. And we get to know that during this raid that, you know, they have scaled and infiltrated a comm station or a transmitter station. Yeah. So uh, I want to talk about the big picture here for a second. We've got a lot of moving parts here. The first setup is we have a diversionary assault by Grayson's battle mech forces, right? So we've got two friendly mech lances here and versus 12. Those aren't good odds, but all of this is about time and space, right? Grayson's uh, two lances are attacking the 12 loyalists and they just need to be a diversionary attack for just long enough in order to allow Ramage and his little commandos to get in here and do what they need to do. Which we find out when he notices that the Legion's dropship is inbound, that they are going to send a message back to Tor. Yeah, so Invidious is in system. Ramage calls Lori and tells her the good news. Turns out Lori is the one carrying the tape. She has the tape, and she's in the Locust out there. But it says that she's hauled down, squatting behind the basin rim, with only the little iconic Locust antenna it's just visible. You get a little scene of it's like, what's over there? It's just a little antenna poking up over the basin rim. It's actually Lori who blasts the data over to the comms equipment and Ramaj then blasts it into space. It's a zip squeal. So all of this is interesting, right? Lori sends the packet over to Ramaj and Ramaj is going to send the recording and cycle it, right? So I'm sure maybe you've heard in school and stuff, you know, the early NASA recordings where we sent, uh, what was it, the Voyager, where it's like constantly cycling radio communication over and over again as it departed the soul system. So it's going to play as a loop. So they're just going to blast this thing in a burst. And it appears that for all intents and purposes, this thing is just a giant radio. It even seems like it's analog, and they're going to be sending kind of like packets over, encoded packets over radio, which is interesting. The power of this, I mean, it doesn't take much power to get off planet, but the travel time we learn is 11 minutes, which means it's probably putting out like a decent amount of power. Which makes sense then. Why we had to attack this particular location is that this was probably one of the few accessible locations that the rebels could find to shoot off a message to the dropship. Totally. So as we talked about in the last chapter, and the key 
traditional fashion of here's what we need straight into the action where we are taking what we need. You know, through these couple pages, the whole plan's unveiled that, Brent, as you were saying earlier, there's the diversionary attack, Ramage has gone in, and that's all been to relay this message up to the dropship because this is the one facility that can do it. And this is, you know, when you're on the back foot, when you're this little rebellion, right? Like, it's it's all about what you can just squeeze out. So you're expending a lot of resources. All the eggs are literally in one basket here, right? We're, we're risking a lot to get this message out in hopes that it will double, triple, quadruple their efforts. Now, we don't know what the message is, do we? Not yet, anyway. Because on the writing side, I'm going to steal a little of your thunder. It's clear the reason Keith does this no planning and here's right in the action is it keeps the tension up for the reader, right? And I think it's working here. Yeah, I agree. Because as we got that, the plan as we understand it from the end of the last chapter is the Verthandians need recognition. And it's like, well... (laughs) What does that mean? What does that mean? Who does it from who? Like, who's going to help? <laughs> now we have sent off a message to get them recognition, but we still don't know what that is yet. Listen, we sent the message, but the boys are still all stuck in this room. There was a thudding at the door, which shivered, raining flecks of splintered wood. Four pale faces looked at Ramaj. He shrugged. I don't think we're going back the way we came, boys. And as if to back him up, there came a blast of light and sound from overhead. Three of the five commandos that Ramage had left above dropped into the room, their faces ashen. The panther outside had been alerted to their presence. So they're just in here, and they hear like, and Ramage is like, not that way. And then immediately, (laughs) boom, and the roof crashes down, and the three dudes like come through the ceiling like, oh, like with their guns. (laughs) I love this. Oh, yeah. Ramage and the boys are now trapped in this room. The combine troops start shooting through the barricaded door, right? They like pushed a dresser in front of it. Well, now the dudes on the other side are shooting through it. They kill one of our guys here. The boys start shooting back into the door, of course. But they're like, there's a short exchange, but then the gunfire stops. What happens now? A loud roar like a dropship launching echoes from outside and the lights go dead, right? Total darkness. Support beams ache and twist. Chunks of ceiling smash down onto the comm equipment. Like you did big chunks of the, like the ferrocreator, like, like breaking. And then we see the Panther used its jump jets and has landed onto the roof above them. And immediately a giant metal hand smashes through the ceiling. It's like groping around, like trying to find anything it can grab. It's so scary. This is so cool. We get another, like, mech horror scene. Totally. Like, from the first book. Yeah. It finds someone. It grabs that young lieutenant that Ramage kicked down the stairs earlier. It picks him up. It, like, crushes the guy. <gasps> it's so nasty. Ramage and the boys, like, have to, like, look away. Uh, this is where I'd add the Wilhelm in for this movie. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I agree, Kanan. I think this is, like, this is Keith at his best. Like, whenever we have these mech horror scenes, it's just, like, he can really make you feel the tonnage of a mech. As we talked about the last time when we had the Shadowhawk scene in Decision at Thunder Rift, when you're playing the board game or the video games, you can sometimes just see them as giant metal dudes, and you're fighting other giant metal dudes. So when you get it on the ground, on foot, and you see, like, oh, this hand just popped through, and while blindly searching, crushes 
a person like an accident while trying to fish around you're just like oh man these things are devastating what a cool scene but more interestingly than just the action of like well i mean it's very easy to see this giant fanged feline mega man coming through the top just like towering over the tower but yeah they're so strong Interesting, too, I think we might be seeing those power gloves in action again, maybe. <laughs> yeah. The, the yeah. ones we had mentioned that <laughs> one that. time. Yeah. The interesting like amount of articulate. We know that Mexican carry boxes and stuff, but it takes a little bit more from just carrying shipping containers and stuff to like being able to like articulate and like crush a dude. <laughs> I love that Keith added that power glove in in the first book because it has become like headcanon for me of like any time they are talking about that articulation, there's just power gloves on in the cockpit you know, fiddling around, looking for things, getting fingers wrapped around stuff. I still don't think it makes any sense personally, but <laughs> and I don't think it's canon anywhere else. <laughs> but it doesn't have to make sense to be super cool. <laughs> but but it is for, for this. I'm like, yeah, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. The hand, it, it crushed this poor kid. The hand eventually, it the... The panther drops the body and it, it keeps it keeps kind of searching around for a moment before receding. And then Ramage and the gang, they're just like standing there and the hand like withdraws back through the ceiling. And then they hear the sound of autocannon fire, like echoing from outside, like followed shortly by the unmistakable sound of a battle mech crashing into the ground. So they're like, oh, cool. They kick down the door to the stairwell. They make their way down the stairs out the front door, where Grayson's Shadowhawk now stands over the destroyed panther. And they look out and they see the rest of the Legion's mechs are already starting to pull back into the jungle. And like a hovercraft pulls up. And they're like, come on, get in. And the boys jump in. Chapley dies on the way back. So this is all horrifying and all, but it's actually, I think, way more interesting in that we've talked about the state of technological decay in the inner sphere during and post the succession wars, right? Technology and the ability to create it, even stuff we still understand. It's hard to, it's hard to manufacture. It's hard to get people to man it. We're in kind of a deficit. The fact that the Cretans were so concerned for what message they could be trying to send that this Panther got the go ahead because there's, the, the reason, undoubtedly, that the panther waited as long as it did to attack was because it was waiting for some higher up to go, you're good to go, kill them. Because there's no way he would have acted on and it destroyed this, like, comms outpost on his own. Now, for all intents and purposes, this is not a hyperpulse generator. Have we talked about hyperpulse generators before? I don't think we've had one come up yet in the books. I, I don't think we've had one come up, and I'm not going to do it here since there hasn't been one. We will see them in the future, and that's a whole different kind of sauce than this. But nonetheless, this is still an important infrastructure, right? The fact that the Panther got the go-ahead to destroy this outpost to prevent the Rebels from getting whatever message they wanted to get out, out means that the Cretans are scared. They are worried that they might lose this. And we've already kind of seen this angle from Nagumo. Here's like it in action out in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think you make a great point there because I didn't put that together 
of like, why is the Panther inactive here? And I think, you know, even though it's not explicitly stated, I think that could be a great reasoning behind it is waiting for that permission to destroy their own asset because it has fallen, obviously, into enemy hand at this point. That's my own headcanon there, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I think it makes the most sense. I think it makes, instead of it just being a whim of a pilot to destroy an important infrastructure, this does make a lot of sense from even the higher ups to say, well, if they're sending a message out there, we need to make sure they can't communicate. They've sent one out, but we can't let them get a reply or anything like that. So it makes a lot of sense. That would be the reasoning he was delayed in the fight. But then, of course, you know, it's a good thing. Grayson comes in, <laughs> saves Ramage's bacon here. <laughs> because, like I said, Keith just did a, such a good job with the scene. It's definitely one of my favorite chapters we've read so far. We weren't going to do it justice just by reading it because we weren't going to be able to capture the tension and everything he does with it. But that multiple times when Kanan earlier was discussing the fight between the Cretan soldiers and Ramage's soldiers before the Panther attacked and how he was sitting there talking and pausing, like saying we've shot through the door so much that there's fist-sized holes in it. So what's next? Is it going to be gas or grenade that comes through that door? And it's just that pause and that silence. Instead of it being just a constant drone of action, there's up and down very quickly within these paragraphs to capture that tension as you were talking about. And then to cap it off with the idea that the message was sent out, but we don't know what that message was. You know, what could be being sent out there is great. So we had this incredibly terrifyingly successful raid on a transmitter station to get that message, hopefully, to tour. This scene rules. It's very sad that Chapley dies. It is. It is. We have two deaths. Chapley and Gunberg. We do get a nice, like, hero moment from Grayson. It's so triumphant when they come out and the Shadowhawk is standing there. You're like, yeah. When you hear the autocannon fire, you're like, yeah, it's the Shadowhawk. They had called Grayson earlier, but he was like, he said he was busy. You know, I'm like, I'm a little busy here. You know, sorry. You know, you guys get to take care of it. And Ramaj does. I love Commander Ramaj. Yeah. Grayson shows up and shoots the Panther. I hope we get more on foot Commander Ramaj. This was, this was cool. Don't know if we do or not. The best on foot Commander Ramaj, in my opinion, is yet to come. Not in this book, though. The next. Ooh, I'm very excited then. But as we said earlier, Brandon, as you were talking about how scared the Cretans were for this message, we're going to find out how much it shakes them when we get in the next chapter. Chapter 27. We open with Nagumo emerging from an elevator into what used to be the university archives, but has now been converted for use by the special branch. We get this scene of Nagumo walking down this corridor in this concrete slab basement sublevel. He looks tired. He hasn't been sleeping well. Turns out, rebel activity has actually been increasing since the raid on Fox Island last week. And there have also been riots in Regis City, civil unrest. He's concerned about the raid on the transmitter. He knows they got a message up to their jump ship, and the ship jumped out. Nagumo assumes they must have jumped to Galatea to recruit more help. He sent a message to his goons in Galaport but he knows he can't assume they'll be able to do anything about it. So now, 
he's dealing with the very serious possibility that the rebels will receive additional reinforcements in the near future. Only six days remain until the arrival of Duke Recall. Dun, dun, dun. It's not looking good for him either. I think this is a really great scene that Keith threw in here, a little brief line about like, for everything that's gone on so far, you know, it really doesn't feel like Grayson's really won anything. Seems like Grayson has survived, but he's just remained an annoyance in all of this. Because, I mean, Nagumo's forces aren't threatened. It's not like they're at the door beating on the Regis capital again, trying to threaten to take it. But there is still very high stakes for Nagomo at this point because it's like, oh, the Red Duke gets here. We already know that if things aren't going well, he's done. And so it's, it's a, that desperation moment that it keeps the war almost equal on both sides that makes this very interesting. Yeah. He keeps trying to stomp it out, though, but he can't. It gets worse, right? The tighter he grips, the worse it's getting. The iron-mailed fist tactic isn't working well for the Kiritans. Maybe he'll learn his lesson. Nagumo's had a real escalation problem this whole time. We identified this early. Nagumo eventually finds the man he's come here to see, Dr. Vlade. Because this is Vlade's torture dungeon. Of course, Vlade has a torture dungeon. Of course he does. Right. That's what the special branch is. <laughs> More like special whip. Yeah. Oh, we're getting there. <laughs> yes, Dr. Vlade has been down here with Carlotta Helgemeyer, and he's been torturing her with a neuro whip. There's this whole scene. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> but Nagumo is here. So Vlade, to start off, Vlade tells him she gave him some information that the good doctor thought was interesting. So it was, uh, it was him who called Nagumo down to talk to her. And I don't know, guys, it's this whole thing. We get like the neuro whip scene where he's like, you see, I've trained her for pain. She never knows. And he's like touching the whip to her and she's like screaming. He's like, this thing ain't even on either. She doesn't know when it's going to hurt. Yeah. And it's just like, this is a wild scene to be in here. We've talked about so much through this novel of bad guys being bad guys. You know, we've yeah. had Kaplavik scene. We've had Nagomo doing all of his stuff throughout the way, just being like, Oh, I'm the baddest of bad guys. And like now Blade is throwing his hat in the ring, but it is the most uncomfortable part of it where it's just like, I feel like it's a scene in a different book. Like it just <laughs> changes very quickly to less like wartime to like erotic torture. <laughs> I, you know, Keith was working something out. Yeah. yeah, he. he <laughs> also, I thought Nagumo was the weirdo, but it actually turns out that the psyops guy, of course, the psyops <laughs> guy, uh, is the weirdo. Like the whole time I read this, I like got the vibe that I got when I was watching like Reanimator. It's yeah. just a wild energy that Blade comes in with. He makes it very clear that Nagumo is very uncomfortable the whole time. He's uncomfortable. Oh yeah. He's like, this guy's a freak. Vlade <laughs> is like down here like the sickle, like, yes, I've he's like my master. I've trained her with the whip. Like the pain is exquisite. And he's like, oh my God. Like, why did Recall put this dude on my staff? Like this <laughs> he's insane. <laughs> he's so crazy. I can't help but feel like this feels like an always sunny. Like it's like straight from like yeah. because of the implications. So 
to me, it just uh, like I do like that uh, Nagomu is just kind of like sitting there going like, what? Oh, 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 why am I down here? Because this really could have been structured differently. I could see the intention for Keith to be like, oh, look at the extremes that they're going to. But we already knew the extremes that they were going to. Right. And I felt like it could have been like Blade comes up, like there's blood on his outfit. And he's like, I've gotten through with interrogating Carlotta. This is what she's told me. And you would have gotten the same impact of the scene because we don't need any more bad guy examples. Like we just don't need. Wait, you didn't want BDSM neuro whip scene then? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm okay. I, I definitely didn't order it on the menu there. <laughs> yeah, so Vlade called Nagumo because Carlotta gave him some information. What's the information? Turns out Carlotta has knowledge of resistance leaders within the academic staff. She gives away a bunch of names. It's this whole thing where it's like, oh, well, she knows who all the collaborators are. There's a bunch in the government and the staff of the college, because the college is the center of culture. It's the center of the government. You know, these are a peaceful academic people. So she gives all these names. She's like, I know. She's like, I'll tell you who all, you know, everyone is. Anyone who's anyone, all the collaborators at the meetings and stuff. I know uh, who's who and whatnot. So Nagumo decides, ah, it would be best to make an example of them, is the conclusion he comes to. At the end of this, it's this whole thing, but he's like, yeah, we got to round him up. You know, I got to round him up. We got to get to shooting. I, we were just talking about escalation. And if you're like, that seems like a very extreme, you know, I, you know, maybe uh, don't, you know, maybe think about it before. So uh, once again, a bit of an overreaction. He's like, we got to round him up and start shooting. Basically, he's very cruel as always. And I do feel like it is a wild decision. To say, like, let's continue to escalate. But I also feel like it makes sense in this scene where it's like we just talked about, like, six days till recalls here. We're obviously in a place that recall can't get here. And he's going to give a thumbs up to the job that's been done. So Nagomu having to make a change with the information he has makes sense. But following the same plan that he has does fall in line with the bad guy tendencies that Keith has set up for him the whole time of like, this man is a double down kind of guy. I'm right. He is. And let's keep going. It's not the kids that are wrong. <laughs> Fuck. It's not me that's wrong. It's the Rithandians. And that's it because we cut from the scene with Vlade and Nagumo immediately back to Lori. Lori is having bad dreams again. Yeah, we get a Lori... Kalmar dream sequence. She's dreaming of Sigurd, her homeworld. She's dreaming of the night her parents died, how the soldiers came and burned everything. She's having the usual dreaming of Grayson shooting her with the Inferno missile. She bolts awake again. She gets up, splashes water on her face, just starts kind of wandering the dropship in the middle of the night. And then she finds Grayson studying in the lounge. You know, we've gotten a lot of mentions of Lori having the bad dreams, and Keith has finally rolled out, like, what are those dreams? And it's like, oh, well, pretty reasonable, it seems. Grayson caused a traumatic event for her, and now that's been associated with past trauma, and she's unable to escape that cycle. And I really liked good the way Keith kind of set that up. And I also really enjoyed the scene where he's talking about her wandering around the dropship at night. And it's basically like the dropship's never like closed 
It's never shut down. But when you're up late at night, you're walking through these places that you're used to seeing all kinds of busy work happening and yeah. a lot of people moving around. And then it's just this like almost emptied husk yeah. that you have to wander through. And I think he nailed it. And it was something, as you guys know, when we were recording one of the episodes and I was sleeping in an airport, like that, the description hit that experience I had when I was wandering around an airport, you know, in the middle of the night. And it's like, wow, I'm so used to this being so busy that it captures like the liminal nature of that kind of experience and how that's really almost offsetting and disturbing to be like, oh, I don't feel like I'm supposed to be here now. So waking up from a dream like that, then setting it up as she's wandering around a place that she that almost feels alien is really neat. Yeah, it is cool. The uh, imagery of the empty dropship is very cool, for sure. Good point. So we get this scene with Grayson and Lori. You know, she walks in and he's like, oh, can I get you a coffee or whatever? And she's like, no, I'm good. What are you doing? Because Grayson's just in here. He's in the lounge and he's stressing out because he's also... Still hasn't gotten that secretary. No, no, not yet. (laughs) He's been getting, just like Nagumo, Grayson has also been getting reports of increased rebel activity all over the planet. He's realizing just now how kind of out of hand, or at least out of his hands, this whole thing has gotten. He wants to help them all. He's like going on, you know, he's like ranting to Lori about this. He's like, I want to help them all, but you, he's realizing they're beyond the scope of his control, right? And he's, he's, he's worried that good people are going to get themselves killed and he won't be able to help them. He's very stressed out about it. And Lori's just kind of watching him. She's just watching him rant. There's a, there's a little, uh, I pulled this little segment here. Lori felt a pang as she watched him. She almost reached out to him, but her inner turmoil stopped her. She liked Grayson. He was kind and gentle. She admired his quick intelligence and the way he could inspire respect, obedience, and admiration in the people he commanded. How nice is that? She's like watching him and she's like, I love this guy. Lori wants to be closer to Grayson. She doesn't understand why she has these nightmares about him. She's thinking about how she thinks she loves him, but she's afraid to trust him. It's this whole scene. This is the hottest it's been. So if this is as close as we've gotten. We were talking about last episode, how this was turning into Grayson's war. But now Grayson, as we said earlier, and as you were saying now, and as the text is saying now, this isn't Grayson's baby anymore. In fact, it's exactly whose baby it should be. It's the people's baby. Yeah. This is, it's the people's war now. It's the people's baby. Grayson's not reading it like this because he's in it, but... You know, for the audience and for, like, for us, this is a sign that they've got a chance, right? Like, they could win this thing. Yeah. There's a bit of hope. We also see a bit of a spark of Grayson's morality here. He's like, he's feeling the pressure. Last episode, he was goading that old man, right? And he's like, this is your war. Why don't you fight it? Yeah. But he's feeling the repercussions of, I was pushing that guy, but it's like, oh, now how do I help everyone? And the reality is you can't. Grayson was exactly what he needed to be here, and that's a catalyst. Yeah. 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 Well, in that spark he ignited to move this war forward, I like that Keith takes this scene in particular, because I feel like he could have had this scene with a bunch of different setups. Where it's like, you know, Grayson sitting alone and having to really digest the fact that Spark he wanted to set off in the Verthandians, he did. 
But now that means they're out fighting untrained against an army. And he's feeling not just the personal losses that he's felt to this point, all the down moments we've had in the last episode that we talked about in this episode, but all the ones that we can't see, all the ones that he's just reading a report on of how many deaths happened in this little skirmish and internalizing each one of those to say, at the end of the day, these are my fault. And but they're not Grayson. Uh, the reality is they're not. But it's good that he feels that way. I like the fact that it is yes. exactly that it shows that we have really hung up the himbo hat, Grayson, and now it's it is the man in charge. We've said it many times that he's hung it up, but now we're seeing the idea of like, oh, I'm not just playing war anymore. I'm not just fighting for my own personal conquests and my personal agenda. It's not about my emotions. It's not about my feelings. It's about something bigger than me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this was a really down-to-earth scene where both him and Lori are struggling internally. And when we have established this whole book that Lori and Grayson have this romantic tension, but right now, through that stress and trauma that they're going through, it's like it'd be the worst time to go through any of this. But seeking some kind of comfort and some kind of companionship is something that now Lori wants, that Grayson wanted earlier as well. But Grayson just isn't in that place anymore. He's taken the hint off Lori to say each time he's approached her and each time he's seen that that desire from him was impacting her that, you know, maybe I need to take a step back, see her as a member of the Great Death Legion that I fight near that we could lose at any time and keep that as a respectable distance. And now Lori is the one pushing. It's a it's a flip script that we have made fun of Grayson this whole time. And then this scene, we could, uh, on our previous takes, go through and it's like, oh, Grayson, all you had to do was say the, you know, right sentence here. And you could be happy with this. But I think in reality, deep down, he knows he's got to focus on this. So I think Grayson did exactly what he needed to do. And now... It just so happens that they're both in this stage of dealing with the consequences of everything around them emotionally. It's just not working as a relationship. No, no. There's this moment, though. I This whole thing hinges. Lori has this moment of tenderness. She's watching him be all, like, chivalrous. She even says, I think, earlier when she first comes in the room, he, like, stands up, even though he doesn't have to. And she thinks to herself, like... He's so, like, he's got the, like, inner sphere manners, is what she says. She's like, he's like a city boy. He's all like, <laughs> but it is funny. She, I think she says chivalrous. She's admiring him. And she's like, I want to talk to him. You know, I want to open up. This is the moment where it's like, they're going to have a moment. And he, like, looks, you know, and she looks down and it's like, Gray? You know, he, like, looks up at her. You know, he looks all like, he's like in goblin mode. You know, she's like, Gray? And he's like, huh? And like, like, <laughs> like snaps up at her and she's like, oh, can, can I help? And he's just like, uh, you can help, Lieutenant, by going back to bed, getting some sleep. We got a little hike in the morning. I want you rested. And then she's like, oh, and she realizes he's not. She's like, there's a whole moment. You feel like the music, when you're cutting back to Lori, it's like, it's like a different 
soundtrack you know she's like the like the the strings are like swelling absolutely you know and she's like about like they're like she's about to have the they're about to open up and the nightmares are melt away and then like she's like crying and he just like he just tells her to go to bed they're two trains going two different ways i mean he is in here just doing the charlie in the mail room like losing his mind it's like, oh, then you, oh, right. You get to see this is like the dark side of genius. It's like, uh, but yeah, she does get all huffy though. She's like, she dropped her eyes to hide her disappointment. Perhaps then he no longer thought of her as anything more than his executive officer. Perhaps I'd better. And then she like starts walking away, but there's even a little thing where she's thinking like, I bet he'll like follow me back to my cabin. As she like is like leaving the room. She kind of turns and like looks back to see, like expecting him to like be getting up. And he's just like even more like gargoyle hunched over like this little <laughs> coffee table. Like he's like jabbing a stylus at like a teeth, like, and she's just like, <laughs> she's what it, I think <laughs> the, the nerve. Yeah. Oh, right. She says she, she, she thinks to herself, Lieutenant, indeed. She whirled and strode from the room. It was nice to see Lori, the one that has packed spaghetti in her pockets in this scene, instead of it just being Grayson every time. And as I I was talking about earlier, I think this was all set up really well by Keith, you know, with the Sue Ellen and Jeffrey scene in the beginning, as we kind of talked about, you know, how I thought that might have repercussions on if anything was trying to be started. He closed himself off a little bit for that, and now Lori's the one pursuing, and Grayson's the one going like, well, I got all this paperwork here. (laughs) This is so much paperwork. Lori's like, well, do you want to talk or anything like that? And he's like, I would if I didn't have all this stuff to do. (laughs) You know, if I wasn't trying to win an unwinnable war right now. You do get the idea that Grayson would like to relax. It's like, just not in the cards. Yeah, he yep. should have followed her, though. <laughs> this would have been a different scene. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'd save that for Galatea, you know. But no, we'll see. we get a different kind of action. Because <laughs> as soon as she stomps out of the room, we immediately cut back to Nagumo overlooking a Regis city in flames. He's like, do you just get this scene? He's standing, you know, arms behind his back at his window. And he's like, there's been... The, but there's a bunch of stuff burning. There's clearly something has gone wrong. And we learned that as he planned, he had arrested 117 people based on the information Helga Meyer had given him. The executions had begun at dawn, starting with the chief academician. But as soon as they began executing people, that immediately provoked A city-scale riot. Well, well, well. Isn't it the consequences of my own actions? (laughs) Yeah. It's a... Yeah, violence erupts, and Nagumo had been forced to order battle mechs to fire into the crowd, which then killed over 200 people. And it's a whole situation. It was a complete chaos. The people started coming out. It was a huge demonstration. There was a lot of resistance. There's There's a massacre... A bunch of protesters get killed. Nagumo's forces managed to push the rioters out of the courtyard where they were still detaining the collaborators they didn't execute. And so now we're in the present with Nagumo, and he's realizing that he underestimated the level of anti-combine sentiment present in the local populace. 
My favorite line in all of that is Nakumo's self-thought for a second where he goes, the, the depth of the response of the citizens of Regis had caught Nagumo completely by surprise. And it's like, really? Did it? Like, how? How? I was going to save this, but here's the thing, right? I think if we go back, if we flip the pages all the way back to the very beginning of Mercenary Star... And let's let's use our minds and teleport back to episode one, <laughs> where there's a certain somebody sitting across from Nagumo in his desk. He's just begging Nagumo to just give them amnesty. Let them come forward yeah. and like let's just dispel all of this. Keith gave Nagumo an out at the beginning of the book. Yeah. Right? All of this could have been prevented if if that had happened there was no fire that uh Grayson could have started he would have had to incite something right he would have to like work extra hard yeah but as you guys brought up earlier he chose escalation and he's been going in the wrong direction ever since I just thought it was funny that it mentions Keith wrote in there that it caught him completely by surprise <laughs> yeah and it's like completely by surprise would be saved for a person in charge of a group of people that he weren't actively fighting or rebelling <laughs> right. against. But no, no, I, I completely agree. Keith did. I, I have no complaints with the way Keith has handled the Gomu. <laughs> I think the thing, the calling card from that specific conversation that you're talking about, Brent, was that Nagomu is a narcissist. Ding, 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 Like, ding. he is using authority to prove himself right. And that has only worked against him at every stage of this book. Nothing has gotten better for Nagomu, even when he dealt a critical blow to the rebellion. He's still like, what's happening? Yeah. But he can't take a moment and say, a, a, a moment of self-reflection and say, Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Maybe I need to change what I'm doing. But he keeps doubling down. And here it's just like, oh, man, all of Regis is on fire. He's losing a battle where Grayson hasn't even attacked. Him. Yep. He's just losing against himself right now. And at this point in the novel, it felt really good to see totally. it. I mean, you feel like Keith does a great job setting that scene of like, oh, this is a full scale riot. Terrible things are happening. There is no veil anymore of comfort uh, with the lives uh, being ruled by the Cretans. There is just like, oh, any loyalist now can see that this was the inevitable result. And this was the result really Grayson was looking for, Brent, as you were talking about. So yeah. as we just talked about Grayson internalizing all of those deaths and even thinking to himself, you know, what can I do? Am I wrong? Am I doing it? It is somebody with that empathy behind it. You had an empathetic scene previous with this from Grayson and then this narcissistic scene with Nagomu to really put our protagonist and antagonist side by side to really evaluate them. And I think that's genius. There is no way in my mind that that wasn't intentional. Oh, 100%. I completely agree. Keith has been so consistent on placing some of these things exactly yeah. where he wants them to draw those comparisons, to really feel those ideas. And I think that is something where it's just like they're this knocked it out totally. of the park, where it's just like, oh, I have nothing but the idea to root for Grayson for the rest of this book. You know, as much as we've made fun of this man, it is like 
No, no, no. We love that man. Our boys all grown up. <laughs> yeah, our boys all grown up now. And uh, you know, all my homies hate Nagumo now. <laughs> and Nagumo is upset because Duke Recall had wanted the university and the native government structure to remain untouched to preserve the Combine's image on Verthandi as benevolent overseers <laughs> and not brutal oppressors, right? That's his whole thing. He doesn't want to take it the hard way. It's the same thing with Trelwan. This is the last thing he wants, which is like a meat grinder. This is not what he wants, and he will be here very soon. I can help Duke recall out. He needs to tap me for his HR, right? Like, I just need, just get me in there. Yeah. Let, let me be in charge. You're not hiring the best guys, recall. <laughs> Give Brandon Marauder, and he'll happily join your side to Greek call. It's just that doing nothing would have been better, right? That's the yep. problem with the Gumo, <laughs> yeah. is that if he just did less, this would have all gone his way. Yeah. If he did nothing, Grayson would have left already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he would have been gone. But Nagumo swears. There will be peace in this city before the Red Duke arrives. Oh, I'm sure he's got a great plan to turn this all around to a giant humanitarian effort, right? Yes. <laughs> and then, so you get Nagumo stressing out about Duke Recall uh, arriving shortly. We're almost at the end of the chapter. But before we get there, it cuts back to Galatea. Light years away, the spy waited in the shelter of a Galaport blast pit this time searching the sky back to that spy we got that dude again because you remember the invidious well this is where we find out that yes the invidious returned to galatea days before a draco courier had dropped out of hyperspace and beamed a coded message nagumo i think we mentioned this earlier he messaged ahead letting him know to keep an eye out for the invidious so we cut to the spy he's like watching the dropship port through like the binoculars, the chapter descends with, and he's reading the name on the side of a incoming dropship. It's the Deimos. He smiled as the Deimos settled into a waiting cradle in clouds of dust and smoke. The target had arrived on schedule. I like how Keith tagged this on to the end of this little chapter, like after that tonal shift, because it really does feel like Nogomu swears there's going to be peace in the city. Like that feels like a chapter break. But I feel like including this and showing like from earlier when he said, oh, they have to be going back to Galatea, it reinforces the idea that Nogomu isn't stupid. Right. He's not a dumb villain. He's a bad guy, but he's wrong. He's playing all his, like, if he played his cards the exact way that he's seeing them, but without the crazy level of authority that he's been doing this whole way through, things would be going so differently for him because he has read Grayson's plan and the playbook, you know, on the field each play. But he's making all the wrong decisions with all the right information. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. You nailed it. It's beautiful. Um, we're going to find exactly what they're doing on Galatea. In the next chapter. Chapter 28. We open with the scene of Renfred Tor on Galatea. 
He's talking to a man named Salvor Steiner Reese. And Salvor is a representative of the Lyran Commonwealth. Thanks, Bob. Hey, yeah, thank you, Bob. <laughs> Renfred has withdrawn his vanadium from the bank and is showing it to Salvor. Remember that they got paid in like medals from Verthandi. You have this whole scene, Renfred's got this briefcase and he's like, check it out, I got this medal. And Salvor's like, I don't care, dude, you can get vanadium anywhere. And then so Renfred's got to make this whole pitch. We do get this. This is this Renfred smooth talking. He's trying to persuade this wealthy gentleman. It could, because if if Salvor can be convinced that Ferthandi has vast amounts of untapped mineral wealth, the man might be persuaded to support an attack against Duke Recall's forces. And Renford, he's giving him this whole pitch, right? He's telling Salvor all about the asteroid impact and the, the caves and the mines in the desert. They have all this mineral wealth. I'm telling you, they got, they have all this untapped mineral wealth and the combines just drinking your milkshake. You got to send some boys there. You got to help them out. Unfortunately, he's, he's giving them the hard sale. I love this scene. There's a whole mm -hmm. bit about an asteroid and like, well, you know, yeah. You don't like that metal, but we've got more. It's like, listen, the Curetans love this metal. They're in here mining all day and night. And, you know, if they're there, that means you want to be there, too. Yeah. This does get a bit of an eyebrow raise. Mm -hmm. This is, again, this man has the last name Steiner. <laughs> so, you know, if it doesn't make dollars, then it doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which, Basically, he's like, this man's here for the paycheck. He's a Steiner. And this is our first reference of a big house name in these books. We've met a bunch of different characters, but we haven't met a Kirita yet. We haven't met a Davion. Oh, good point. But we do see a Steiner here, even though it's not one of the big Steiners. <laughs> I, he's not even notable. Yep. Oh, there's a bunch of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's this whole scene. He's pitching them so hard. He's like, you got to help them out. You know, the Combine, they got the locals mining the desert. He's going on like, so you're saying that these people have been there for hundreds of years and they've just been farming? And he's like, that's all they needed. They've been chilling. Now the Combine have shown up and they're going to take all their untapped wealth, dude. You got to help them out. Unfortunately, Salvor remains unconvinced of Verthandi's hidden value. He ends up, he tries to get out of the conversation. Really. I've been talking to you for an hour. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm just not interested. And I think it even says, Renfred... Tor knew that he had failed in his mission. Yeah. It really reminded me of some of the conversations me and Brent have had where I've like, tried to sell him on a TV show or book that I'm reading. <laughs> He's like, I'm just, this sounds very unappealing <laughs> to me. And I was like, but you got to understand it's weird and crazy and exactly what I like. And you're like, it's okay, man. <laughs> Go do you. It's good. Like that time you recommended to me the uh, Green Butcher. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did... As we were talking here, do a cursory search of Sarna. The Sarna database, if you're not familiar with, is a amazing wiki for for all things Battletech. And with a cursory search of Salvor. Salvor, whatever. Sal, you know? It's old Sal. Salvor. Steiner Reese. Yeah, old Sal. <laughs> so old Salvor. The only information on Sarna about this uh, bigwig Lyran his position is ambassador at large, profession noble, and there's nothing else well, notable here. He's a rich guy. Sarna has all the information that we learned from this <laughs> exactly. chapter. Exactly. Sarna knows uh, as much about Salvor as we do. I remember, didn't um, 
I skipped over in my notes, but I remember in the reading, Renfred finds this guy through a connect. He has like some girlfriend, yeah. some girl in the city. Jerry. Jerry. That's right. Her name's, yeah, he has to look up Jerry. You get images of like this bouncy. He he says she's fun. She's like, oh, she's fun. Like I, I'm, I'll, I'll yeah. get her up. He's so smooth. I do like that. Of course, he <laughs> yeah. wrote like, yeah, Renfred. He has these girls he calls up when he gets into town. <laughs> you know, hey Jerry, how we doing? <laughs> like Trent Sparks' voice has just become canonized for. He's so slimy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, they need you. <laughs> <laughs> now they're bent to part ways. Renfred's talking to this guy. We see that three goons are following Renfred and Salvor. These three goons, you know, they got like the trench coats and the pistols. They all nod to each other and they all pull their pistols out like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just immediately like Tor and Salvor, they're like shaking hands like, oh, sorry, you know, it, it didn't work out. He's like, oh, it's okay. And then immediately they hear the sound of footsteps. The dudes come running up to them. All right. So they like swing around like, who's but who's trying to run up on us? And the would-be assassins just, like, open fire. Tor, like, holds up his briefcase, and it's like, he takes several rounds to the briefcase. But um, the bullets don't make it through. They Because of the material, the vanadium. Yeah. They knock him to the ground. He gets, he yeah, he gets knocked down, but he doesn't get shot. He manages to pull his pistol from concealment and subdue these guys who were shook that the shots through his briefcase did not do Renford in. Yeah, like Renford goes down and they all turn to Salvor and Salvor's like, oh God, no. And I think he like closes his eyes and he hears like, and then he like opens his eyes and like all the dudes are dead. And like Rennie's like... Oh, they all, you know, it was hard to get my pistol out with their head, with the shooting my briefcase or whatever. He's so smooth. It's so sick. This scene, it's just like peak tour vibes coming out yeah. of it. You know, it He's made me think best. like, all I want is a Ramage tour spinoff yeah, absolutely. novel. Absolutely. Uh, where they're <laughs> yeah. off on secret missions. Touring the stars, maximum ramage. <laughs> They're just digging holes. Like, Ramaj has dug a hole on every planet. And he's he's like, I've dug holes on 73 planets. <laughs> he's got, like, a little jar of sand. <laughs> yeah, he's got a jar yeah. of soil from every planet. Yeah. <laughs> this rules. But as cool as this scene was, when I read it, because the goons, as they're lining up, and they, you get the goon perspective, they're like, oh, he's meeting with a diplomat. This is perfect. This is going to hide our true intentions that Tor was the target. Yeah. So it's going to look like a political assassination and yeah, not us killing right. some ship pilot. And they're getting paid. They're like pretty cheap yeah. too. I, the prices in there, it was like only like 5000 or something. I was like, come on. But as as we're rounding out this section, Tor's like looking over at Salvor going like, Galatea's police will be along to investigate the gunshot shortly. Though such attacks were relatively common in less civilized ports of Galaport. And it's like, so they came up with this big thing of like, we need to attack now when it could be a high visible crime. Or we could have shot a ship pilot in an alleyway by himself. And then it would be like, this is business as usual. Aaron, you and me both know that some things just have to happen in order for the plot. I And you know what? (laughs) It's cool enough. That you get to say, let's keep this plot rolling forward. No, it's great. Because it was a cool scene. However, they might be the worst assassins we've ever encountered here. (laughs) 
<laughs> they are the bad goon squad. They fumbled it. <laughs> so they they uh this is a huge fumble. But that's okay because Nagumo, remember he he was even like, I got some goons, but they'll probably fail. He says that. He's like, I <laughs> yep. can't trust him. He knows that they're just cheap guns. You know, you get what you pay for. And like, as they finish that up and Tor looks over at Salvor and basically is like, you know, they're shooting at me, right? And he's like, it does oh, yeah. appear to be that way because they would have shot me first if I was the target. And he's like, right. so why would they want me dead if this didn't actually exactly. mean anything? Tor. And it's just like peak. Tor. He's like, why? And he's like, come on, man. I've been trying to tell you. Tor flips that failed persuasion check into a net 20. Boom. I know. Coming up huge in the moment. Yeah. yeah. And there's that line yeah. that the words had come to Tor, unbidden and inspiration. It's just like. Absolutely. <laughs> Tor's special ability. Yeah. He's like patting himself on the back. You know, yeah. he like, he like lights a cigarette after this one, you know, like, <laughs> like. <laughs> Good job, buddy. <laughs> but yeah, this totally allows Renfrid to convince Salvor that the men were trying to conceal the value of Rathandi by silencing him, which is what he was trying to convince him of. So Salvor's just like, you know what, actually, come back with me to the embassy. And the, the scene ends with them like hurrying back into the city. Goon so bad, they work for the other team. Yeah, it actually was worse. But Renfrid Tor has something going on, but is it going to be enough Clearly, the guy's interested now, but what amount of resources does he even have to command, let alone like what he's willing to part with to help Verdandi, this like world on the edge of the periphery? Do you think that Tor is exaggerating, or do you think that Verdandi actually does have vast amounts of untapped mineral wealth? It probably does, right? I was thinking about it, I'm like, this is pretty convincing. I think he's right. I mean, later on in this episode, there's going to be a lot of mind talk. Yeah, there is a lot of mind talk. That's true. I think that he exaggerated the like extent. He, I mean, he was he was selling them art. He was like, he was like all this super rare stuff right at the surface, easy to grab, free money. He's basically like, it's free real estate. Yeah. And he's like, this seems a little. It probably isn't that good, but we just got to scoot these Caritans off. You know, we just got to like <laughs> dust them off. It probably isn't as easy as he's selling it, but I bet that they do have a lot of wealth. That I bet Verthandi has a long way to go in terms of development. I just imagine Aridin spent like the whole flight to Verthandi, like talking about minerals and exhaustively and tour just like tuned it out just enough to be able to throw all this back. Yeah. In the succession wars and going forward here, big picture, let's zoom out. Map of the inner sphere in our heads, right? The reality is, is that resources on the whole, you know, these successor states hold enough wealth in planets, asteroids, you name it, that they're, none of them are really hurting too bad for any kind of natural resources, right? It's really only when you get That's down, true. it's only when you zoom into these and what we're seeing literally like this where there's really any kind of squabbles over natural resources. And it's really just more about, you know, point A over here doesn't have them, and point B does. Different successor states have different methods of getting those things from point A to point B to dubious effect. So it does make sense overall, this whole, this little the thing we've just been over, that this Lyran, this Steiner fellow wouldn't be that excited about these resources. And he wasn't. 
<laughs> I'm just saying, like, I think I think this was good world building. Uh, it, it like even now, you yeah. know, this is an older book. Even now, this stuff kind of holds up to BattleTech's lore on the whole, which I think is impressive considering how old these are. I meant to bring up Salvor Sinaris brings up the point that the combine did not take for Thandi a decade ago. It was seeded in a treaty. So he was like, we gave it to them. Right. No takesies backsies. He was like, it was it was seeded legally to the Draconis Combine, to House Recall. So we go back to Grayson and the gang. They have returned to Fox Island. The base has been deserted, but the damage is not as severe as Grayson anticipated. Right? He's like looking around. It's sad. Ramage goes and checks the plantation house. They find numerous bodies, more than can be easily identified. He's like, We're, we have like a mass grave type of situation. It's a rough start. And they're certainly short on staff. But Grayson and Ramage, it's this whole, it's like them walking together. They're having this whole walk and talk. They put together a plan to kind of get some stuff up and running. It's cool. They're just walking around the base. Grayson brings in the point. He's like, yeah, they tore out all the equipment and stuff, but I was expecting scorched earth. Like I thought they would tear this place down to the studs, but they just kind of stripped the like relevant equipment and then like kind of left. They were probably in a hurry. There's still some utility here. We still got these caves and whatnot. It's cool. They're like, we should about moving back in. They have this conversation. They talk about moving the mines around. I just thought there's this whole little paragraph where it's like, we're going to move the mines and like, we're going to put them here. So when the combine comes back to check, they'll like walk into their own traps and stuff. There's this whole thing. They have this whole thing. They're just talking about getting this thing up and running again. They're like, let's set up a little decoy camp. Let's put up a little tent. They're getting kind of crazy. They're like, (laughs) they're going pretty wild. In their minds, they have it like, well, they took all the stuff, but now the base is better fortified than it ever has been. They've demolished it so it doesn't seem like it has any worth. And then they put mines all around here and we have the caves intact. So, you know, it's free real estate. Yeah, it is. Well, he's like, they'll, they'll probably come back and check eventually. That's what even they're trying to put a diversion out there so that they think that, I don't know, they're trying to figure it out. But yeah, they're like, come on. You know, Grayson's like, we can do it. Ramaj tells him it shouldn't be too difficult if we can get the parts. Grayson's like, oh, we'll get the parts. Governor General Naguma will provide us with all the parts we need. And uh, Ramaj is like, oh, getting a little cocky in your old age? And then this little section ends with just Grayson. You get this. He's like, I'm getting tired of being shoved around by Naguma, though. We're, we are getting like a galaxy brain. Grayson, he's like, no longer are we worried about logistics. Like, the, all the logistics we'll ever need are always going to be right at our door. And it, like, points at, like, Kareed and Sidgul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. He's like, he's like, he's like, where are we going to get the stuff? He's like, you know where we're going to get it. <laughs> when I first read this, I was like, it doesn't seem like a very good idea to set up in the place they just attacked and might keep eyes on and everything to go back through. But this is our boy Grayson we're talking about. It is Grayson. And that's what I thought <laughs> about after, you know, like, after first reading and digesting it, I was like... Maybe it is the smartest play to set up in the most obvious place, because the one place you don't ever want them to find is the ship. Right. So, Grayson moving and kind of creating a front of a base and a a hideout that they can work out of keeps them from being around the ship. And then in that same motion of the scene earlier when he's sitting with Lori going over all the paperwork, it's almost like you've watched him put the puzzle pieces together of saying like, oh... 
this war's gotten out of hand for me. It must be really out of hand for Nagumo. Yeah. So therefore, I'm in a better spot because I have nothing. Right. So I have nothing to lose. And he's got all the stuff. And he's losing all of it. So I'll just go take it. Are you trying to tell me Mercenary Star is actually this deep cut and like letting go of materials possessions? (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. I didn't think so. But it did have free minds though. So hey. It's free minds. I mean, hey. Save you a couple sea bills. This is a book about a bad contract. (laughs) You go straight from them talking about moving back in and being like, where are we going to get the stuff? And it's like, oh, we got to get it from the combine. And immediately you cut to a scene of these mechs escorting this column of prisoners through the rolling hills north of Regis. Two phoenix hawks, a wasp and a stinger, are walking with this. uh, They have all these prisoners, uh, citizens from um, Regis City. They're just like transporting. I think they have a little chat with each other. The two pilots are like, oh, there's been like rebel activity lately. Whatever. It's like, oh, we should be fine out here. We're not too far from Regis. But they get a sensor reading. You know, it's like, oh, I got something. He's like, move up and check it out. And so the Phoenix Hawks kind of push forward to like, coming from those trees over there. It might be a mech. And as the one Phoenix Hawk approaches the edge of the forest area, Grayson's Shadow Hawk like rises out of the bush. And Grayson just immediately like boosts forward and like shoulder smashes the other mech with it. It says it uses the shadow Hawks, like how it has that armored pauldron kind of thing, which I thought was cool. It says he smashes them, like tackles them. The squad leader and the other Phoenix Hawk starts like moving in for the assist. Like, hold on, I'll help you. But he starts taking fire from the rear. So he like turns around and the locust and the stinger are back there. Just like pew, pew, like shooting lasers at him. And he's like, God. And so he starts radioing out a call for reinforcements, like a general alert, when another stinger appears along with like half. It's like not only that, it's like another stinger walks out with like a half dozen hovercraft rolling in with him. By the time the like the mech warrior turns around to check on the prisoners, he's like, he's like, where are my prisoners? He turns and looks, they're all gone. <laughs> right. And then he's like, what about my friend? And he turns around just in time to see Grayson finished destroying his buddy in the other Phoenix Hawk before like turning before the shadow Hawk turns towards him. And this chapter just ends with the squad leader, like drowning in auto cannon fire and long range missile impacts. <laughs> it's awesome. This scene, it gives me red Dawn vibes. This is some real like Wolverines. <laughs> no, I really like the way, like for a quick battle scene, I think Keith set up this fun ambush by keeping it in the enemy perspective because we don't get many of the enemy perspective attacks so far where it's just like they're out on a routine. Like they've got 50 prisoners that they're walking alongside in in mechs and they're probably just out there like, what can happen here? You know, (laughs) they what are they going to do? They're all chained together and they're they're just north of Regis. You can see Regis from where they're standing. You it's the city still like in visual range. And, like, then the attack starts, and Keith does a good job describing, like, the indecision of, like, oh, what are we supposed to do? Like, we're getting attacked, but I can't really register what I'm supposed to do about that. And he has that sentence, for a few rapid heartbeats, he stood paralyzed, wondering at which target to direct his own fire, but the initiative was lost. (laughs) And it's like, you just see these guys just, like, turning, and, like, instead of firing... They're just trying yeah. to figure out who A is in charge to yeah. make the call of what to do. 
and then nobody was. So it's opposite grace and doctrine of like, if no one acts, then we're sure to lose. There's a whole conversation I would have in here about NCOs, and it's just, it's all too <laughs> tiresome. It's, it's not worth it for this. What a perfect little like hit and run scene here. It really is continuing to sell the like scrappiness of our boys. Yeah, they kill them. It's very efficient. They run a clinic on them. They hardly get a shot off. And then they rescue a chain gang. And we're going to find out exactly who was part of that chain gang in the next chapter. Chapter 29. We are still with Grayson and the boys in the moments right after the ambush. Like there's no time lost. It's just, it's a direct continuation. His guys are reporting in that they were able to successfully rescue the prisoners. You know, the dudes in the hovercrafts are like, we got them. Grayson gets a message that two lances of backup mechs are on their way, coming out of Regis. They can see them. They have the binoculars on them. They can see like two lances coming out of the city and like headed towards their direction. Grayson has his heavy hitters on backup. He has this other lance with him, but the combine reinforcements do outton them. He's nervous about it. He radios McCall, you know, like, are you sure you guys can handle this? And McCall's like, oh yeah, we can handle this. Don't worry. We got it. It's his veterans. It's like McCall and Delmar Clay. And, but yeah, Grayson asks the boys if they're down to take them and McCall assures him that they are. McCall's voice broke in, Captain. If we can't take in these snatch and natch, we best look for a new colon or something like that. Yeah, it's awesome. So they're like, no, we're going to take him. We're going to take him. And it, and like, there's a bunch of weight. What mechs did they bring with them? There's some pretty heavy stuff rolling up. There's like a, some archers. The identified mechs are a phoenix hawk, a couple of shadow hawks, two wasp, an archer. What I think is a centurion and a warhammer is the quote out of the book. Nice. It's a lot of tonnage. I mean, they've got a lot more stuff now, right? I've actually, I'll be completely honest with everyone. I've lost track what Grayson has and what he doesn't. And I think you're supposed to. It seems like they've probably done some raids and stuff off camera too. Yeah, I don't have the yeah, T-O-N-E in front of me, Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But they seem to be doing all right. They look at it and they say, we got a rifleman. And a Wolverine. It's like, yeah, with that combination, you know, you got a Wolverine and another mech. You'll win. <laughs> yeah. I'll always talking shit about the rifleman. Is he wrong? You know? Well. So they tussle. McCall and Delmar Clay and the boys, they go in. And the ambush force lost two stingers, one shot to pieces by the combined fire of the enemy Warhammer and Archer when it tried to change position, and the other smashed by the enemy Centurion. Neither rebel pilot was able to eject before his mech was destroyed. It's very sad. Relatively little damage was scored on the Karita relief column. Clay's Wolverine claimed a wasp. McCall's rifleman chopped the Phoenix Hawk into scrap. And one of the Karita Shadowhawks was limping heavily as it retreated back into Regis. So that's how it went. It was not a disaster. They did lose two stingers. And it sounds like the pilots died as well. That's pretty good. All things considered, that just goes to show having initiative on your side and the element of surprise goes a long way. They get some salvage. They capture a stinger and a phoenix hawk. We're able to haul off the wrecked wasp and phoenix hawk as well. They specifically say intact. The stinger and phoenix hawk is intact, which is implying that yeah. it's unblemished, which this is great for them, right? Because that means right. 
they don't have to worry about doing any of the refits and repairs themselves on a tight budget. Well, the Phoenix Hawk needs a new head. But a lucky shot had severed a primary driver link in the Wasp's lightly armored spine and cut its power supply to its legs. So it was like this sick shot that just severed the power supply and so the mech went down. Interesting. So it's basically, yeah, totally intact. It says that. The Wasp was a real prize. All in all, it was a highly successful raid. Not to mention the 50 Verthandians rescued. So they get all they get all their stuff, they pack it up, they go back to Fox Island. Shortly after, they reached their Fox Island camp. Lori brought Grayson the startling news that one of the rescued women was Sue Ellen Klein. It's Sue Ellen, Aaron. <laughs> I knew. It's Sue Ellen. Last time we saw her, I was like, we haven't seen the end of her yet. So we continue to see her through this next <laughs> right. section as well. We go back to the Fox Island Caves, where Grayson reunites with Sue Ellen Klein. Her physical description, she was gaunt, with a haggard expression and a dullness in her eyes that twisted Grayson's soul. She doesn't look good. They're like sitting down next to a fire, right? It's kind of like dark. There's like, I think, right? There's like some campfires and stuff, and she has like a blanket over her. Then Grayson sits down with her, you know, talking about, he asks her if she's okay. They have this whole conversation. Sue Ellen tells Grayson about her time with the Combine interrogators. She is obviously very traumatized. We learn that after they pulled her out of Vinny's room, they threw her in a holding cell. She tells Grayson about how she told them about Erickson. Oh, she has this whole thing. She's like, they used me. You know, they used me and discarded me. She gives him the whole story. She's crying. It's very sad. Grayson like takes her into his arms. But yeah, she tells him everything. It, 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 Grayson puts it together. He was like, he is like, oh, that's how they, okay, I get it now. It's this whole scene. Because the last time they talked to each other was the whole when she was in space, you know? I'll see you in hell, Carlisle. I feel like Grayson handles this pretty well. I don't know. I kind of, ex you know, the yeah. first time I read this years ago, I was kind of like, why isn't he mad? You know, he's just kind of like, there, there. I think it says something about Grayson that he's able to just kind of let it go. I mean, it's a it's a weird situation, this Sue Ellen thing. I think it says something about Brent. <laughs> <laughs> when I read it, and after digesting it, I actually got more of a vibe of like, Grayson doesn't deal with it. Like, he just chooses to kind of like, like, I've got so much bigger things to deal with. Like, you happen to be here. I'm going to make sure that you're not going to try to kill me right now. And at that point, I'm going to hand you off. Because he kind of like, as soon as she settles down, he passes her off to Lori and then gets up and moves forward. Because, I mean, what is there to do? I mean, he could drag morale further. That's what I was actually going to say. I don't, I still don't, I don't think I agree with you. Yes, sure. There's not really anything for him to do. But I also, I think he sees that. She's paid a penance for <laughs> what she did already. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Is that it's kind of like, he's just like, it's all just very sad now. That's the feeling I get about it. Yeah. But I agree. He didn't choose to be Grayson from the first book about it. Right. Where first book Grayson may have exploded and made it about the emotion side where here he was just like, well. We lost a lot of good men, which he did. He did. But it's just, he's just like, well, that's over now. Like, that's just what happened. And I don't know that there's a right or a wrong answer there, but I do feel like this is the high road, if there is a high road. But I also 
without knowing what comes ahead, I was like, oh, is this going to also have a consequence later? So it was something that I did take down and kind of put into the good mental notebook there of saying like, oh, we'll keep our eye open because Sue Ellen just keeps coming back. So I'll never tell. <laughs> Maybe we're done with her. Will we see her again? Who knows? Who knows? Oh, Lori approaches from the darkness. Captain, <laughs> she looks down and sees Grayson and Sue Ellen like holding each other. She tells Grayson, she's like, there's someone else you need to meet. And so he gets up and she kind of like takes his place. Like I think she starts holding Sue Ellen. Lori watched him go with mingled thoughts. Her own jealousy just now surprised her. Why should I be surprised if he finds someone else? I haven't exactly been encouraging his attentions. Does being jealous mean I love the guy? So she's having weird feelings. She's straight up having a bad time. Poor Lori. (laughs) It just, to me... It was like Lori went off the deep end here. And who could blame her with everything else going on? But it's just like, I could just imagine the Grayson we know at this point, like sitting next to a traumatized woman who's like very obviously from the text, like awkwardly trying to figure out what he's supposed to do to comfort her. And then it's just like she collapses and he's like, "Uh oh, I I guess you're here now. Yeah. Somebody throw this man like a life raft. Like (laughs) we've said this before, you know. Grayson's greatest strength is an enemy that underestimates him and his tactical prowess. I would argue this environment is almost, well, it's not the worst Grayson we've ever seen, but it's definitely not playing to his strengths. But Lori here, I don't know. I think this is all like I was talking about a few chapters back. I think you feel the exhaustion and everyone here. Grayson's has problems kind of understanding what's going on with Sue Ellen. He's not really Lori's like letting her emotions flare up. I everyone to me this all, all of this, like everything going on, the accumulation of this chapter is just further proof that cracking at the seams a little bit. So they've been in so deep for so long, they're just exhausted. Yeah, and that's how I took it, too, after thinking about it. Because when my first read-through, I was like, man, the romance stuff did seem to stall out for so long, and now it feels like it's coming back so heavy-handed. But when I thought about it, I was like, you know, Keith might be using that as that tool to say, like, here's the thing where people have kept stuff under control for so long, but that point, as you said, that there's exhaustion has come through, that any kind of weakness emotionally is coming up to the surface. So I saw it, as you were saying, this seemed less romantic tension buildup and more emotional She's acting out. She's acting out emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. It's a reaction to stress. That's totally what I think here. Yeah. The next scene is a conversation between Grayson and Janice Taylor. This is the woman that Lori told him to go talk to. And he's like, you know, what's going on? Who are you? We learn Janice was a history teacher at Regis University. And so they get to talk and Grayson asks her if she knows anything about what's going on in Regis. You know, what what happened? You know, because he doesn't have great evidence. He's like, I heard there was some stuff going on. Janice tells him, you know, there was some kind of shakeup that caused mass demonstrations. And before she knew it, the battle mechs were firing on the protesters. And a lot of prisoners were taken to the mines, including her own family, like her father and her mother her brother and such. Grayson asked her if she could like locate the mines on a map for him. You know, she's like, oh my God, are you going to like, like rescue my family from the mines or anything? He's like, oh, you know, it'd be a good way to prove to the people we're friendly. 
And Janice, she gives him this whole thing about how the populace has already kind of come to see the Grey Death as these like inspirational folk hero type figures. Uh He's like, no, the people talk about you. Yeah, we're all about the Grey Death, you know? Grayson asked Janice if the people in Regis still got any like fight left in them. After it all went like went down, has it been subdued or are they still fighting? Like, what's the situation? And Janice paints a portrait of a people beaten, but yet unbroken, basically. She tells them that the threat of being sent to the mining camps keeps people in line, but it also keeps them fighting, right? Because it's because they're like, well, I don't want to go there, so I might as well fight. Janice asks Grayson if he's planning to liberate the mines, and he tells her, he's like, I want to do it, but when stuff like that puts a lot of innocent lives at severe risk. You know, you go to liberate some prisoners, they could all end up dead. You know, we don't know what we're getting into. It's, it's like really dicey. She's like, well, wasn't the thing we did today when you rescued me like really dicey? And he's like, yeah, but we had reports that you guys are being transferred off world, right? And so once you guys left, we had no chance of getting you back. So we did. But yeah, you guys were in danger. Luckily, it worked out. You could have been slaughtered. Janice is like, you made the right call. That was the right thing to do. <laughs> I mean, I agree with her, but obviously a bit of a biased position. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do feel like in the next statement she's going to have with Grayson, she removes some of that bias and moves back to the macro of her thandy. Yeah. She tells him about her treatment at the hands of the Combine soldiers. They were, you know, they're pretty cruel. And But she's she's talking about her family. She's like, I don't want them to die, Captain. But if half of what I heard is true, they'll be dead soon anyway if no help comes. I won't be able to promise we hit the right mine. If you don't free my parents, you'll free someone else's parents, or husbands, or children. You'll be raising an army to help you free the rest of Earth Andy. Grayson nodded as he stared into the embers of the fire. That, Miss Taylor, is what I'm counting on. New Grayson plan yep. unlocked. <laughs> Liberate the mines. Which, I mean, this that section wraps up this part. We've got the war that has gone out of control for both sides. You've gotten, you know, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. That's an understatement. It's been, it's been up, yeah. up and down, down. Neuro whips. <laughs> Neuro whips. Thirsty midnight encounters. It feels like, you know, as you read it, like everything got so chaotic in a way where, to Keith's credit, he's kept all like that imagery of the chaos that's gone around. But not to the point where the novel got chaotic for it either. This was much easier to follow than the wrapping point of Decision at Thunder Rift, where you kind of start to lose a little space and everything. This did keep where you kind of understood where people were at at all times and what they're going on. The only thing is, as you said, we've kind of lost tally of what the rebel forces have. But I also think because they've grown so much, it's important not to focus on that micro, like, here's everything they have, or else you're just going to be talking spreadsheets worth of information each page. And I think that's something that, as we've rounded it out, you can tell, like, this was to set the scene for what I can only assume for is some series of final battles, probably similar to what we saw in Decision at Thunder Rift, where we'll have some more set up to a big objective in the speculative side of it. That's what you would think, wouldn't you, Aaron? Yes. <laughs> but I do feel like this chapter definitely doesn't go out with a bang like a lot of our book ends. It is a weird bookend. You're right. I feel like that's where you're working up to. It's it's fizzle out isn't exactly what it does feel like it's building up for the third act. If if I was to put a finger on what the intention might have been here because it does feel like you're like 
it's a choice to have it end on a kind of a, I would say almost neutralish yes. point. But I feel like that's almost what you're looking for. You needed a moment to take a deep breath after reading all of the bad. Because we started part two of Mercenary Star on a high note. And then it kind of just kept going down and down and down. And then all the successes we had came at a cost with losses. Yeah. And, you know, we just, in this chapter, it's like everybody's so exhausted. We talked about that breaking point in everybody. And it feels like he wanted to end it on just an, a, a spark, but not not a big flame underneath of it. Just that idea of like, well, Grayson can see a path forward now. And so it's like you're you're getting the roller coaster starting to escalate back up. And at the end point of part two, that could be the intention. So you are starting near the bottom to build yourself all the way back up to the top, which part three could give us. I would have ended it with the last line would be like three days until the arrival of Duke <laughs> Recall. Mm-hmm. But regardless of that kind of more somber part end, I am really excited to see what part three brings us. Yeah. Because if anything... It's like I, all the action, everything, uh, the last couple bits, even in this episode, we got so many cool scenes, you know, the homage scene, we got tour previous to this, we got all these really intricate battle scenes that flow so nicely that I'm like, you know, he's building to a big climax that I think is going to be great. I love these tight little fights. That's the thing I think. Yeah. When I'm looking at Mercenary Star. The thing that I think really defines this book compared to other Battletech books is it has all these little, like, skirmishes. It has all these little, like, hit-and-run things, and they're these tight little... The rifleman takes out the whatever, and it, like, they're they're very breezy. And I think it's a strength of Mercenary Star. It's some of its fun. It's cool. It's very scrappy. I think this was also... This part paired with the end of part one gave us the necessary mold we needed to get Grayson away. Cause I mean, if you followed along with us listeners and gone through this whole part two with us, you know, the big change I've noticed in just the podcast that we're having is like, we have a lot fewer instances of us railing on Grayson and of making fun of our boy who we still love. If somber, I feel like, I feel like you've gotten closer to him and you're like, oh, I want to root for him now. Where before he was somebody propped up by really great characters where he's really come into his own. And I felt like, honestly, it feels so far where we're at with it. Coming into Battletech novels for the first time, we start at this very pulpy feeling of Grayson falling into a lot of sci-fi character arcs to get you into the mood where we are now where it's a somber military novel. There's a lot of undercurrents going on emotionally. The development of this, I feel like, is laying this groundwork to separate Battletech novels from pulpy science fiction novels. I'm so glad you hit on this because I talk to people in the Battletech community. People have such rose-tinted glasses about Decision at Thunder Rift, and I'm not trying to tell anyone not to love Decision at Thunder Rift. I love Decision at Thunder Rift. We just spent an immense amount of time talking about Decision at Thunder Rift. We didn't do that because we didn't care about it. But 
I think that those rose-tinted glasses come from the entire trilogy, right? Like, and you really, this here is where, for me, this is where this emotional connection to Grayson happened is in, in Mercenary Star. And it, the tone of the podcast the last couple episodes have, has, have they've been a little more somber and we've been horsing around a lot less because it's all been kind of with a heavy heart. And that's what I think mercenary star brings to the table. And I agree. I think that's (laughs) something when we, you know how much I love saying credit to Keith, but he has laid this out as a foundation. I mean, if you're really looking at it right now, we have just passed by wrapping this up. We're, we're into the second half of the trilogy. And by this time it has shifted so much that it has, it has created this idea of like, oh, there's so much substance that going forward, you know, I'm excited to read all of these books because if we can get this kind of shift in tonal change that we have set up by Keith here, I know from listening to you guys and seeing things within the community that these books onward, other authors and people that come along the way continue on with some of those energy, each taking their own ideas about some of the emotions and things. It just isn't the idea of the next person comes in, wants to write a pulpy novel about big robots. It's like, oh, well, we can tell all kinds of stories in Battletech. I noticed while we've been recording, Aaron, that your tune has changed from Decision at Thunder Rift, right? Like, you were like, you were in it here at the po- you know you were doing the podcast with us you were here you were having a good time you were making fun of our boy Grayson but i felt i really felt like this book there wasn't like a a specific moment but i was like we got him you were already into battletech right but like i was you were like oh these books do have something to offer i mean uh, to to be honest i avoided the books for years even though you have been there for a decade now telling me you should read the books <laughs> and as discussed before i did read one of the books and i had a good time with the book but i don't know i guess i had like previous franchise weight of like if you've ever read extended universe books like whether they're star trek books star wars books where they don't live up to the franchise some of the times now i'm not saying that there's not great books and franchises But this one, you're like, oh, this all supports each other equally. And now I just feel like after getting this far into Mercenary Star, I feel like I was missing out on one of the pillars of Battletech. (laughs) And like I'm understanding the game better that I've loved so much by being involved in the world surrounding. So, yeah, I I would say I went from saying like, oh, you know, it'd be cool to cover some of these books and to go through them to saying, I think I want to read all these books. I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> Welcome aboard. <laughs> yeah, you're in now, bud. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't have a choice either way now, but... <laughs> yeah. I won. <laughs> well, we'll see if book three lives up to all this hype next week. We get started to finish our path through Mercenary Star. This was Of Mechs and Men. I am Kanan Hill. I was joined, as usual, by my friends, Brent and Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us. I would like to thank, as always, William H. Keith Jr., the writer of the book we've been reading, and, uh, of course, all the other writers and artists who um, 
help keep Battletech alive. Catalyst Game Labs for being such generous stewards of the property. Please, if you have any emails, questions, concerns, corrections, please write us an email. Advice at heat.management. That's advice at heat.management. Please. We're on social media, at of Mex and Men, on Instagram, on Twitter. One word, at of Mex and Men. Please feel free to message us on there. Please. And don't forget to uh, give us a review, a rating <laughs> on the podcast app. Everyone says that. I want to say it. Give us a five-star review. Give us a review. Give me a good review. I'll read it. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's everything. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be starting book three of Mercenary Star by William H. Keith Jr. Thank you so much. Until next time. We'll see you next week in part three, Mercenary Star. See you there.